Welcome to The Conversation with Jason Campbell and Henrietta Galina. We are back and so is Henrietta. Hello, Henrietta. Hi, Jason. Can I tell you? Can I tell you how happy it makes me to do that intro with the two of us present here? It feels symbolic somehow. It's the end of a year. You know, we certainly have a lot to catch up on, and I am just thrilled to have you back here. Thank you. It has been a minute. More than a a minute. More than a minute. It's been, it's been a minute, Henrietta. And, you know, this is a testament just to how quickly, I know I talk about this every day with all of my friends and my community, and I just talk about how time is simply evaporating. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. And certainly the last two years, and let's, let's call it out, it's been approximately two years. Yes, I've done some recording independently um, in your absence, but it's been about two years that we've been away from here, which is so strange to say. It's really crazy because actually, you know, we've been pretty consistent and we actually launched around this time four years ago. So it definitely is symbolic that we're doing a kind of end of year recap after such a a long absence on, on my part. So, yeah, it feels a little bit surreal, actually, but I'm excited to be back. I'm really excited at the prospect of moving forward and doing the things that I love and, and that I used to do before my absence. Well, one of the things I have to say that I miss is the, the therapy that these sessions, <laughs> that these sessions provide. I, uh, Henrietta, you know how much I think about the myriad issues in this uh, industry. Well, I've been writing, so I've been able to get a lot of my thoughts out, and we can talk about that a little bit later. But these sessions are really important for me for hashing out. I have such passionate feelings about so many areas of this this industry. (laughs) And there's such few people that you can talk to about it, such few people who have the breadth of experience, the breadth of knowledge, you know, really able to, to read this industry in a particular way. And you are certainly one of them. So I am so thrilled to just back um, with this kind of discourse with you. Oh, Jason. No, I feel the same. And it, it, I really did realize that the, the podcast really helps me to kind of organize my thoughts and sort of center, you know, my beliefs, my opinions, understand facts of, of how the industry operates. And so without having that, I was kind of just, you know, floating, reading, having conversations here, there and and everywhere. And so I feel like this is a really good anchor for me, actually, to really focus my attention and and filter information through. So, yeah, I've definitely missed it. And, you know, to everybody who's just shown an outpouring of support, I just want to say thank you. So many people, you know, it was it was quite a crazy time, actually. I was think I was kind of looking back to the last recording, which was the 10th of October. And, you know, we just kind of went off air for a bit because um, uh, I just felt ill, essentially. Although listening back to some of the episodes, like over the summer of 2020, I was like, oh my gosh, I was so breathy. (laughs) Like, I constantly sounded like I was running. But yeah, I mean, it it was really kind of wild. And I kind of took this emergency sabbatical because 
I was diagnosed with advanced cancer and I had to spend a long time, um, six months actually, in hospital on continuous chemo and it also took a few months after that to rebuild but I am in remission and, you know, things are looking up and I just wanted to just really say thank you to everyone who has supported sort of offline and online. I got so many messages from people who are like, where's the podcast? When is it coming back? What's happening? What are you saying about this? What are you saying about that? And it was really, it was really touching because I was always just like, little of me, we do this little old podcast and like whatever. And actually, as much as we find it, you know, to be these anchors, so many people really did reach out and say, well, you know, we use this podcast as a platform to help orientate ourselves and, and get information and, and have the conversations that, you know, people aren't really having in the mainstream. And it really was kind of overwhelming to see the community that we have created and cultivated without even really realizing it. Because I think more often than not, you know, we come on here and I feel like I'm just having a conversation with a really good friend. And yeah, it was just really magical to have that outpouring of support and, you know, to be back is, is really fun. And I think it's also nice to be back at a point where so much time has passed. So for me, it's been really illuminating to see, you know, what has changed, but also what has stayed the same. I was a little bit like, I woke up and I was like, hello, it's 2019. So I'm interested in diving into all of that because I think we now have, we've always had very different perspectives within the same sort of spectrum. But I do think that now we have this added layer where, you know, you've been moving through the industry news and, and the world and culture. And I feel like I just was like in it, then I was out of it. And I was thrust back in it after being, you know, essentially out of the world for the last 18 or so months. So I think I'm very much looking at a then and now situation, like compare contrast. So I think it'll make for actually much more dynamic conversations as well as you also filling me in as well as the audience as to what's been happening. Well, it's not, it's no surprise that you have received such an outpouring of love. You're a fantastic human being for one, um, but in this context, I think we've recognized it for quite a while now that there is an absence of critical thinking in this industry, fashion, culture, and that's the space that uh, we occupy. And, and void of that, yes, people are going to be looking for information from voices like ours because there simply is not there simply are not enough uh, voices out there that are really speaking to this industry. And we've spoken about it in different ways as to why that is. So I'm glad to just be back into this forum and we can both offer our, our, our perspective, our unique perspective, oftentimes quite <laughs> controversial as well for the audience. So if nothing else, I'm glad to be back here to keep sort of uh, stirring things up, if you will. A hundred percent. I'm really glad to be back. But I think... One of the things that would be good to touch on is just to almost get an overview of what you've been up to over the last sort of couple of years and any standouts, any call-outs, any things that you are really thinking about even still. Oh, gosh. Well, you just asked, like, a super loaded uh, question yeah. there. What have you been doing for two years? <laughs> <laughs> what have you been doing for two years? Uh, break that down. 
Well, uh, there's been there's been a there's been a lot going on, and I got to tell you, over the last couple of years, I well, no, it hasn't been um, sort of unique to the last couple of years. I <laughs> I'm a thinker, I'm uh, I'm a critic, and I'm always looking in the crevices of this industry to see where injustices are and and how I can put a spotlight uh, to them without being sounding lofty or soapbox or anything like that. But my point is that. I have been looking at all these problems in the, in the industry, and I've been raging. I have to tell you. Well, you're a um, truth teller. Well, fine, fine. I'm a truth teller, but here's the thing: we've been talking so much about these social issues and fashion, and and the move to correct things and improve things and make them make them better. Henrietta, I would say most of most of the conversation over the last, let's say, year and a half around Black Lives Matter and all the impact it's supposed to have on our industry and our lives and our employment. Optically speaking, yeah, we're seeing a lot more black people in in, in fashion magazines and in, in campaigns and that kind of stuff. But I have to tell you, from my research, and I've been doing a fair amount of writing, really interrogating this area of the industry, and that's the behind the scenes, the decision makers, and so forth. There is a, 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 a startling lack of interest in really embracing black professionals into the fold, and particularly out of Europe. Um, and I could cite some examples on this, but particularly out of Europe, I have to tell you the resistance to employ black people as decision makers is stunning. There's been so much performance. There's been so much sort of like lip service and nothing has been done. I have to, I have to cite this example. I was going to write an article about it, but it ended up not being as positive as I wanted it to be, so I shelved it. And that being a situation in, in Italy, particularly around the Afro-Italian talent. And there is an organization that Afro Italian Fashion Week um, executed by this, this this woman Michelle, and and this season they got a lot of attention. Four of the designers, or several of the designers rather, were on the cover of Italian Vogue, and a winter came to their showing. Naomi Campbell was giving them you know attention and so forth. And can I tell you, after the sort of fanfare of the weekend at Milan Fashion Week ended. No, practically none of the Italian designers and Italian fashion houses really went to these designers to seek them for employment, to see how they can bring them in the fold. Mind you, these are Afro-Italian designers that are in Italy, that speak Italian, that's been in, um, ingratiated mm. into that world. But what I've come to discover is that fashion is really so entrenched in its racism that it refuses, it refuses to move the needle in any significant way in terms of our employment, yet they've gone so much more deeply in using our currency and our cool to sell their products. And so I have to highlight that there is no, there's no smokes and mirrors that's going on here for those in this industry who think that, you know, they've effectively sort of sheened over um, the black situation. It has, it, it, there's not even been a modicum of correction in terms of black employment in this industry from my observation. And then I don't want to go on this soliloquy because I do want to talk about the black community and how we are organized um, in another part of this conversation. But yeah, Henrietta, I'm sorry to sort of deliver this pessimistic response to you, but no, things do not look any different. I definitely hear you in the sense that 
in sort of my absence, I I definitely feel like it, I woke up and was like, hello, it's 2019 again. Not necessarily optically speaking, but definitely in terms of the behind the scenes nature and the mechanisms that make fashion work and the power structures and such. And I did actually see this um, example that you're talking about with, you know, the Italian fashion scenario and even with the the Vogue cover the Italian Vogue cover just to caveat it was a digital cover I think that is symbolic in many ways but yeah I can't say that I'm as surprised as you though to be fair because I do feel like Europe is quite unique shall I say within the western world as it pertains to conceding power and the super colonial way of thinking and just this really deeply ingrained ideals around uh, around race. And so, no, I, I, I'm not really that surprised. I think the optics of it all is smart. It's just good business. I mean, with the fallout that happened in the summer of 2020, everything that's happened around Black Lives Matter, you would have to be an absolute fool to not find a way to play into that, to optically appear like you are trying to bridge that gap. That's just good business at this point. So, you know, is it disappointing to hear? Absolutely. Is it surprising? No, not for me at all, because I think there's also what we've seen the summer of 2020 for me, it really felt like this energizing period where things were really, really going to change. People were really telling the truth and say and exposing the insidious nature of the covert and overt racism in our industry, within the power structures, within the, the, the system of fashion, right? And I did think that this was a really fertile breeding ground for change. That said... I do think that without the power structures actually changing, there's no real way forward for meaningful change because, you know, the very, I've said this before, the very people who were benefiting from our absence are now profiting from our visibility right now. So it's like if you're not going to change power structures and the people in the decision-making corridors, it is just all optics, right? Because essentially all you're doing is talking about someone having a change of heart or someone saying, okay, well, I see a few black people, you guys can come in. or That's essentially all that's happening. And rarely do people just concede power and say, okay, I'm willing to voluntarily subject myself to the consequences of the actions that I've been um, complicit in or that I've actively participated in. That rarely happens you concede enough power to placate the oppressed in certain degrees, but you still retain a certain amount of power. Your interests are ultimately still protected, right? So we see that with, you know, Anna Winter not stepping down at Condé Nast. You see that with all of the problematic editors and heads of brands who are still in those same positions. They're just singing different songs now. So, with that, I don't really see how you're expecting the meaningful change, especially in Europe, where those kind of executive branches are literally unchecked. A good example is, you know, you have these all-white institutions at this point, these institutional brands, who are going unchecked because 
they're all governing themselves. We know that self-governance doesn't work. I mean, look at Prada. They only really changed their tune when they got called out and there was legal ramifications for their actions that were perceived as racist. So they weren't going to check themselves. We see the same with Gucci with the Dapper Dan situation and the balaclava sweater. And they didn't check themselves. They got checked and now they're the forefront apparently of this racial movement. So for me, without the power structures actually shifting and certain people of power literally abdicating their positions and conceding power to people of color, to people across the gender spectrum, to people who actually want a more egalitarian industry, there will be no change because we're relying on their very limited ideals of change, which is only really pushed forward when they are pushed, you know, via cancel call-out culture, via social media, via consumer pattern trends, etc. But that's really limited because they weren't thinking that in the first place. They set this blueprint and now they're being, you know, charged to reset a more egalitarian blueprint that literally makes no sense. No. But that's not to say I don't believe that people can't evolve and change by all means, but when we talk about leadership, I find that very difficult to swallow when we're just relying on the exact same people to lay out a different way of being and working and creating opportunities for people that they had previously excluded. And now let's look at our community's role in these efforts. (laughs) And that has been very disappointing, um, Henrietta. Look, I, 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 I've been paying attention to, to sort of style in culture, and I, I'm astounded by what's going on. In the black community right now, style is defined by head-to-toe logo, uh, logo wear. <laughs> and, I mean, these things, we're talking about, like, $700 and $1,000 T-shirts. We're talking about head-to-toe mm-hmm. Fendi, Gucci, Prada, etc. Like this is what mm-hmm. the black. This is what defines style, fashion, fit, flaws in the black community by these, you know, big, um, primarily um, uh, European brands and the ones that I mentioned, Italian brands. Our community, our community, are not asking any questions. They're not asking any questions. I will continue to raise this point until a documentary, until someone's profiles this effectively. I would like to know what happened at Prada, and this may be the third or fourth time I've asked this question in this, uh, on this podcast, and I will probably ask it again until I get a, an answer. Why did Prada not use a black model in any of their, in any of their presentations, campaign, etc., for 20 years? That's a question that still needs to be um, answered. However, in this age, black people, talk about optics, black people are flossing. They're asking no questions. You throw them a t-shirt with a, with a logo and a label on it, and they will sing your praises for, for months to come. Black people are as much complicit in in, in our oppression right now in this industry as are our, as the white supremacists to be perfectly honest mm. look at what we are doing and i gotta tell you i let me let me kind of we're just back here we're just back here but my my energy is already is already flaring you know there's all this peacockery there's all this like <sighs> extra 
extra flossing out there with these peacockery. I love that. Total peacockery. The, 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 these, and we're talking about incredibly, incredibly expensive things that young black people are using to define their style and their fit right now. Mind you, they're not Jeff Bezos. They're not Offset. They're not Cardi B. But yet, those of, and mind you, we're, the, we're still the influencers. We are the ones setting that tone. And so if we're dressing head to toe logo because that's the cool fit, that is what the rest of the population are doing. The white people with the money, the white people who are not, you know, sacrificing everything to buy a head-to-toe logo. And so I see that we're doing ourselves such a disservice in this supposedly woke era. We're not really showing our awareness. We're not showing that we are awake at all. Oh, that was a lot. Yes and no. Yes in the sense that the logo mania scenario is very real that's something that has I mean been kind of prevalent since as long as I could remember um, but I want to be clear you know, though you, this, this new era though this new era this is, this is very clear this new era is, is, is about you know 100x in terms of that this has not this has not really been in fashion in any recent times and particularly trickling down to the streets where you know every child on the streets of atlanta new york or wherever other city their um desire is for a head-to-toe product look this is very this is very of this time to be clear well yeah i mean yes no i mean my only point is that you know logo mania you know you could track that even as recently as the 80s, right? And like the Ralph Lorenz and the, and the Tommies and, and that idea of status. When you say that people are not awake and that they are playing a complicit role in their own oppression, I don't know that I believe that to be a blanket statement because, yes, on one hand, that's kind of true. The very people that are profiting from all sorts of atrocities are being buoyed up by the black community who are essentially printing the money. That's that's true. I think that we're also talking about status and economics and the idea of wealth. That's a completely different conversation because people are really, especially with the social media um, posturing almost, People really want to show their wealth. It is very much like I have a Rolex. I'm in head to toe skins and Fendi. I have 10 MS bags. I have. So it's less about who are these institutions, who are these capitalist oppressors who are responsible for X, Y, Z. It's less about that and it's more about do you see how rich I am? Do you see I have generational wealth? Do you see that I have enough Birkins for me and my children and my children's children? Look how far I've come. And so I do see them as slightly different scenarios. I think that consumer is thinking, if you can't see the logo, you just don't know that I'm rich. You know, that subtlety of style isn't necessarily the point. I hear what you're saying, but I think that there's definitely more at play than just this idea of being complicit in one of oppression. And I'm glad that you I'm glad that you dove into that area of um, of the discussion because yes, you're absolutely right. We're talking about status. We're talking about 
obvious signals of wealth. Remember, this is the Instagram era, so, you know, a white uh-huh. t-shirt without a Prada logo on it is just a white t-shirt. It could be, you know, something from Walmart. So, no. <laughs> no. Exactly. It's like one of those, like, um, if, the, if the tree falls in the woods, it's like, if a t-shirt doesn't have a logo on it, is it really a designer t-shirt? Like, this is existential. It's true. <laughs> because we are seeing way more black millionaires, billionaires than ever before in history. And people really want to put a badge on that. They really want to put a stamp on that. And they really want to let you know that they are rich, as Mimi says. I know, but, you know, and you are right, Henrietta, but we're not talking about, unfortunately, the ones that are the influencers that are that are setting the pace. I wish they were black billionaires, and I wish they were black multi-multi-millionaires who could actually afford the, who could actually, you know, comfortably afford these things. But the influence is really coming from the streets. The, real, the influence is really coming from young black people who aspire to have those signal, those symbols of status, and they will do things to get it. And here's the thing. I think we, we have to parse this conversation a, a little bit because what I'm speaking about is not, it's not just the complicity. And you're right. And I'm glad that you bring up, you brought up this, this component of it. There's a lot about personal expression. There's a lot about, you know, um, how you're positioned in the world. There's so much involved in, in how black people show up and what they show up in 100%. But that also underscores our power. And what I feel has mm-hmm. happened is that the streets, the celebrities, they have shanghaied the power from fashion professionals like us. Like we're in the trenches really speaking to, you know, what actually goes on in this industry. What brands are egregious? What brands are racist? Which ones are keeping the door closed to us? Which one treats us terrible in the stores? Like this is, you know, this is our community. This is our community and this is how we operate. But we do not get to deliver that message because from the optics show that, oh my gosh, like, you know, black people love Gucci Prada and everything else and they're consuming it in droves. Meanwhile, my black professionals in this industry are saying, dude, if you were in Milan, Prada is literally a white supremacist organization, as many of those other organizations, uh, fashion companies in, in, in Italy are. I, I have to be bald. I have to be raw because that's exactly what it is. But black people are transmitting a completely contradictory message. And it galls me. It galls me because if one mm-hmm. of those black people and they had to tell Gucci, try to get a job at Gucci, they probably would not be employed because Gucci doesn't want them in there. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all, actually. I do think we're also talking about two different things. We're talking about two different groups of people who don't necessarily converge that often, right? You're talking about industry insiders who are like, this is crazy. This is structural, systemic racism. This is, you know, how they're impacting culture and professional opportunity and upward mobility of black people, people of color. And then people who literally are just going about their everyday lives going, oh, I saw Drake in Bottega. Now I want Bottega and that's that, right? <laughs> and so, and, and, and so, but they're, but they're really not really having that dialogue between these two camps. So you're really talking about two different groups of people very much in the same way as if you look at politics, I would say that fashion reflects culture. If you look at the right, there's so much information that would lead the people of the right to be really contentious against the left that would actually lead them to literally vote against their interests, right? Because they're not political insiders. They don't necessarily see or understand 
the machinations of fake news or the way that maybe Republicans are what their agenda is in terms of the tax philosophy on the rich and more coal, more that impacts climate change for people, you know, more more often than not who are poor and all of this sort of stuff. And so you have this really wide base of people voting against their interests based on what they think is happening and not what is actually happening. And I think that there is a similar case to be made here where it's like, if you're an average black person who doesn't know Tiffany, who works in that PR agency who's frequenting, frequenting, um, frequenting, who is often going to (laughs) Milan and Paris and having meetings in the boardrooms with these decision makers, they're just going to think that Gucci's just a cool brand or Prada's just a brand that is desirable and shows my status, they're not really thinking, oh, Prada didn't work with any black people for 20 years. They don't know that. That's not really their line of thinking. And there isn't really anything that would cause them to delve into the ethics of the business. I don't really see how they would do that or why they would do that. They they see it for what it is. They most people take things at face value. That's kind of the problem, right? With greenwashing, with race relations, you see a black model, like look at Adidas. You see they sponsor black athletes. They have a plethora of black models. They seem very inclusive. They always have. And then that New York Times report a few years ago, turns out they've got less than 4.5% of black employees in a company that literally hires thousands of people and when you do look at that number most of those black people are on the shop floor you know at the retail level because that is another layer of marketing where it's like see we are inclusive who would really know that who would take the time to really well research and and excavate the information like i think we're asking a lot of the average person so it really is incumbent on brands to be more transparent or there are a number of things that have been suggested or proposed in terms of the Kelly Initiative, Black and Fashion Council, because otherwise, how else are consumers going to know? They're only really going to take their cues from celebrities. Celebrities, more often than not, are paid to endorse these brands or see it as a major cachet to their career. And so we're just in this weird cycle where we're all just making consumer decisions based on optics and what looks like things that will elevate our status. So... I hear what you're saying, but I just don't think that it is incumbent on the consumer to really understand the mechanics of pressure within the fashion industry. And your point is your point is valid. Your point is valid. And you know, it's it's it's. it's, I'm speaking about consumers, but I'm also speaking to um, about the community that touches the fashion industry, and that's and and transmit influence um, from the fashion industry. And it's those, it's those individuals who don't. A lot of them are often young. You know, they're like the new, the new regime, if you will. And a lot of them are often young and they don't, they're not looking at the historical implications. They're not asking what came mm-hmm. before this time. They're just yes. literally now going, going with the opportunity. Oh, well, you know, Prada extended this to me and so forth. And I mean, they, they're going, they're going hard. You know, they're going hard. Um, I actually was just in London for Voices at, um, and this is not a, a critique against her at all, but I thought it was very interesting how she went very um, sort of hard on endorsing Tommy and a history that she did not know about. And please refresh me of her name. They from um, uh, from the, the trans show. I'm sorry, I could 
terrible to call it trans show, but what is that 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 seminal show that really um, shook the shook the world from um, right? Is it Ryan Murphy who was the producer? No. Um, what turn? What's the, what's the show with the trans uh, actresses? Um, Henrietta. Pose. Pose. Exactly. It's Pose. Pose. And re- refresh me of the name of the of the actress who recently shaped her hair. She's one of the main actresses on the show. Um, well, in oh, case, um, India Moore. Exactly. Yeah. Who was lovely. She was on a, on a panel with, um, with Tommy Hilfiger in London at, at BOS Voices. And, um, and she just really spoke about what Tommy is doing and how it embraced like a community like, like hers, um, um, to participate and do a collaboration and so on and so forth. But in that delivery, it just omitted, uh, a history of Tommy. It omitted Tommy's history with the community and so on and so forth. And I think that happens a lot in this era. I think, you know, a lot of the young talent um, even even if they come from an activist place, and I confronted her. I, you know, I confronted her after she said this on stage. I was like, India, I thought it was curious that you know that you went so hard for Tommy, and I wish I had the uh, the clip. Maybe, maybe I'll insert something in the show notes on this. But the way that she went very hard for him, I thought that was um, a bit out of place, as I said, because she hadn't lived the history. I was someone in that room, and several other people in that room has lived the history. Tommy, not to, this is not an indictment about Tommy at all, um, but we need to we need to know the truth, and if we're to rely on our young black and people of color to tell the story, I think that, that there may be a bit of um, a, a bit of folly in that. Wait, sorry. So, so fill me in a bit because I don't really know. I don't really know what you're talking about. She had a conversation with Tommy, and she was going hard. Essentially saying that Tommy, in Tommy giving her, you know, the opportunity to collaborate with, um, with they in this era, Tommy essentially sees the community has been doing this. And she has actually, um, they said that Tommy has been doing this for a long time in terms of working with the community and so on and so forth. And a lot of people sort of winced in the audience and say, well, Tommy also has a very checkered history with, you know, with, Mm -hmm. with our community in terms of pillaging and, and whatever else, um, our sensibilities and so forth. It's a, it's a bit checkered. And again, you know, uh, it's not about indicting someone for the rest of their time. Tommy is active. In fact, I just wrote an article where I included Tommy and his People's Place Initiative uh, surrounding collaboration. So there is work being done there, but let's speak the truth as it happens. <laughs> so, right. yeah, that was- it's, the, it's, the face, it's definitely the face value nature that I'm speaking of because, you know, you see a really visible collaboration with Tommy and, you know, as Zendaya and the YTK trend has come back. So everyone's referencing Aaliyah in Tommy. And then it, it just becomes, it is what it is. Like, oh, he's always been doing this. I guess my whole thing is there is no real prompt for further investigation. Not on the side of people in the industry who are speaking on behalf of brands or history. But the basic consumer, I could totally see how you would see a throwback image of Aaliyah, a recent collaboration with Zendaya, a conversation and collaboration with India Moore and think that Tommy's been about it this whole time. Right. Oh, oh, it's well executed. Yeah, that's a, that's a, you just, you know, triangulated something right there that looks, you know, looks and sounds great. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I do think it's incumbent on the people who are working with the brands, the people of color who are working with the brands to do the homework, to know what they're promoting and what they're advocating in the same way that, Maybe like a Dapper Dan is quite a truth teller. Like he's like, yeah, I was like moving my, I was closing my shop left, right and center. I got some cease and desist. He's very truthful in his rise and his decline and, and why that happened and how he perceives this Gucci collaboration. This idea of this like rose tinted glasses, I think is problematic. I really do. 
But on and a I consumer agree. level, I can totally see how that would happen. And I agree. And fashion loves to just whitewash over things. It loves to PR away something, and and has been very effective. And has been very like effective. Like no other. And in the case of, I have to say, like in the case no of other. Tommy, um, I've recently got connected with someone there, Randy Cousins, who heads up, I think he's the executive or the VP of marketing, and heads up this people's place, with it, which is essentially an internal organization for collaborations. And, and uh, he's, a, he's a real force up there. So I will, give a, I will give a nod to that. Now, let's switch. Well, not exactly switch gears, but this is a bit of an addendum. And that is, that is Virgil, because I think he looms. He looms largely over, <laughs> over, particularly as we speak about race um, in this industry, he looms largely. So shall we dive into, into, into a virtual discussion now? Yeah. I mean, I don't know, just to kind of preface that, I think like a lot of people, it really hit hard and hit different, as the kids say on Instagram. I was knocked for six, I think. From a professional standpoint, obviously he was an absolute giant, but I think personally, as a first-generation Ghanaian who has recently battled cancer, who works in the fashion industry, who has seen the connections and the bridges that he's built, it was it was really tough to, to find that out and just shockwaves and, and just seeing his impact like really seeing his impact on social media. There wasn't a single brand, a single person that I follow that didn't have something really wonderful to say, which I know is generally the tradition when someone passes, but just these stories and screenshots of conversations. I was really floored by the work that he was doing that nobody saw. From, oh my gosh, that uh, last Louis Vuitton men's show, like I was done. It, done, it did me in. It was... It was beautiful and it was um, incredibly sad. So, yeah. Well, um, I conducted an interview with Virgil back in uh, back in April, and uh, at the time, I knew it was a I knew it was a great interview. I knew it was a great interview by the by his response. You know, it was supposed to be a, like a 20 minute interview. It ended up being more than maybe an hour, hour and a half or something like this. And we really, really got into it. And this was about, it was more, it was racial, you know what I mean? And it was about collaboration specifically if you collaborated um, with two friends of mine, Edward Buchanan and, um, and Andre Walker. And these are veteran talents and so forth. And I really wanted to interrogate how that came about, how the relationship was. And it was all about sort of like collaboration, uh, intergenerational collaboration. And it was really, really fascinating, the responses that he gave me. And he said explicitly, he said explicitly, I've never been asked these questions because I'm a black journalist. And as we know, he said one other black journalist he spoke to in this industry, and that was Ray, that was Ray, I forget Ray's last name, at, um, at the Wall Street Journal. And so in this, he was really, really candid with me we we spoke about um we spoke about race we spoke about you know personal relationships we spoke about some of the personalities that surround him and um and so forth but most poignantly something to what you just expressed uh, henrietta is that i it became evident to me just how much of the work that he was doing because i think i i was also a critic of virtual at one time because i didn't see the work i didn't see the racial um um uh, i didn't see conversations about race i didn't see leaning into that at all you know i what i did see was uh, a staff of all white people 
in, in Milan, and I thought that was like, oh, why would you publish that? That seems super misguided. So it's easy to lean into the criticisms when you do not, you know, when you don't have a relationship or speak to someone directly. But that conversation was really important to me, and he gave me a tremendous amount of information to the extent that I just excerpt from that from that um, conversation for an op-ed that I just wrote in the business of fashion. And he just gave, you know, he just gave a lot of great morsels. I, I really just used his quotes. I just tracked his quotes and, and I called it a bit of a blueprint for the black community because that's what I really, and, and you know, for all the, memori- the memorializing that's going on out there, I, I, I said that there were acreage of Instagram coverage and so forth, but all of that seemed just so performative to me, Henrietta. I recognize the, the loss of Virgil, what that means for this industry. He was singular, A, in his power. You know, there was no second running, you know, based on where he ascended to, there was no second running and he was also doing the work. Some of it we knew about, some of it we did not. He sent me a whole dossier of all the initiative that Off-White was involved in, like, I, I mean, a dossier of, you know, multiple pages and it was so impressive and I was so, I was really, 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 really taken. So, from his loss, I was like, oh my gosh, I know, you know, like you were talking about consumers and their sort of optics on this industry. And they're like, oh, Virgil was so cool doing his thing, da 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 It wasn't just Virgil was cool doing his thing. He was the only one in his position who could impact any of the changes that he endeavored into. There's no one else can do so. And I have been a critic. And look at this. There's no leadership structure out there. There's no one. There's no one out there. He was a de facto leader. He was a designer and a creator and all those kind of things. But by virtue of his position, he was the de facto leader. And he went about it in his own way. But as we saw, he touched so many lives in a really, really helpful way. I know most of the players in this industry, the black ones, there is not one um, um, sex contender to fill that spot, not even a fraction of the role that he played. And it saddens me so, 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 so deeply because everyone else, I don't, I don't, I don't think that the, the black professionals in this industry, um, recognize how impactful this could be to their ascent and to their world. <laughs> it, it really can set us back significantly, significantly. And I, and that's what I'm yeah. looking at. I find it very scary, and I find it, I find it a real omission from Black Progress. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying to a degree. I think, I think firstly, from what I've observed, um, and I kind of went into a bit of a dark rabbit hole, I, I do think that everyone who had any interaction with Virgil, or, or, or not, posted... I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't think that the, the social media coverage was performative by any stretch of the imagination. I think he genuinely did impact a lot of lives directly, indirectly, aspirationally. I think I think that is a testament to, to who he was as a, as a person. I agree with you in, in terms of him being the de facto leader. What was interesting is that that had never crossed my mind because he was a designer who was like doing his thing and wasn't really that vocal or not that vocal as vocal, you know, like he wasn't like the voice of a, of a movement in, in the traditional sense. Mm-hmm. But then looking at all of the work that he 
had been doing, known and unknown. You're like, okay, well, when we do talk about there being a dearth of black leadership, he was a leader. He was a he was almost an unparalleled leader because he was doing all of the work. He wasn't talking about it. He was doing it. And I think that's a really important distinction. And I also, I think it's a real testament to his approach as well, because he wasn't like putting people on in a way that's like, okay, well, you could come work on my team or like you could come work for me. He was like, yeah, I'll introduce you to this person, start your own brand. Or like, yeah, you should do this thing. I'll collaborate with you. Let's make it its own entity. Let's make it your thing. And so he was building these kind of structures and these situations and businesses. He was helping other people do their thing. And I think that is quite rare and unique, particularly in this industry that's really established a precedence for, you know, the only one rule. You know, Virgil really could have gone the other way and been like, I'm the only one. I'll put you on by like posting about you on Instagram, but that's about it. The barrier stops there. And so I think he was really unique in his generosity of spirit to collaborate and be willing to share the spotlight and be willing to not make it about him. And I think that that is the blueprint, like that's the work and that's the legacy. As much as he was wonderful and kind and all of these other things, I think his real legacy and when people speak to continuing his legacy, his legacy is just that. Who are you empowering? Who are you happy to see do better than you? What are you doing to help create new structures and not use the philosophy of putting someone on to actually further your own agenda or to make it known, you know, like I've helped like 10 people, like I'm kind of amazing. Like how many people are actually saying, you know, I have a beauty brand. Okay. You want to start a beauty brand too. Cool. Let me hook you up with so-and-so to get you investment. That's generally not the the recourse. It's usually like, well, I don't know that I want to create more competitors for myself. So you're good. Why don't you work for me? And we can roll together. And so I think that that could be potentially what's missing, I think, from what I've observed when people talk about his legacy and continuing that. They do talk about a culture of kindness and collaboration to a certain extent, but then we don't necessarily see the follow-through for that because we're still seeing people who, when you talk about collaboration, won't even email you back. You know, when when someone does something really great, they won't even post about it. So it's like, what are we really talking about here when we talk about his example and his legacy? Because I think that kind of battles against the absolute narcissism in our industry. Well, this is also a point, um, Henrietta, for us to to dissect a little bit these organizations and, and you know, we have to uh, full disclosure, you, know, you and I are uh, two architects of the Kelly Initiative, which we are no longer participants in, so let's let move that aside for the moment. But Henrietta, what about the organizations that were entrusted, the Black and Fashion Council is probably the most um, prominent one of those organizations out there that was entrusted to advance Black causes, and in fact, there was a tremendous amount of money from my understanding. I don't have, I haven't done my own personal research on this, but there was a significant amount of money um, that was extended to these organizations. But as a black professional who's very well connected in this industry, where is the money? What is the work that's being done <laughs> towards a black professional? Where is the money and where's the work? Do you have any answers to this? Um, I do not. And, um... I think to my earlier point about the interesting vantage points that we have now developed with me being absent for a while is that, you know, you've been moving through a lot of this and I've gone and come back 
And for me, it very much was like, okay, there's actually quite a few things that are still the same. And as a concept um, and an initiative, a lot of these coalitions or, or movements seem to have not particularly progressed very far from what I've seen. And it's also been interesting as someone who's been in the industry and kind of disappeared for a little bit because I've actually had white counterparts who are great allies talk to me about opportunities that they've heard from or that they've been approached from these various organizations versus those organizations seeking me out directly simply because maybe I'm like not as cool or as I don't have a social following or I haven't been around for a while. And and that is something that I found quite interesting because I think it is I think it is a lot about optics, basically. So it's very much like the very visible people are doing work, promoting the other visible people, and that's kind of where it stops. I don't but know that what, anyone's what really is digging deep and trying to figure out exactly how to ingratiate a new generation of black creatives or an existing generation of black professionals into the workplace to help dismantle these structures. It's very much like oh, my friend over there is doing this thing with my friend over there and we all have social visibility and have co-signed from the establishment and we all operate in this verified air. I haven't seen anything that um, kind of filters below that and I have been speaking to a lot of people who at more junior professional positions and people who are trying to get into the industries. And that's not to say that's not happening. There are some really, really amazing initiatives that are happening at a grassroots level that are really about it and put their money where their mouth is. But from like a really high level and the black professionals that hold a lot of power, to my point about Virgil, he literally was putting people on in ways that were really unprecedented. And so my interest and my question is like, how is that being continued through these organizations? But and I, not just like... Don't gloss over that. I, <laughs> I want you to repeat that because that's the crux of this. <laughs> that is the crux. Repeat what? How are these organizations advancing the work that Virgil was doing? <laughs> when you said he created a blueprint, like, he literally created the blueprint. I'm like, just do that. Okay. <laughs> it's like, okay. I think a lot of the challenge, and we saw that with the Kelly Initiative and all of these different things that were happening was like, okay, this has never really sort of happened in this way before. Like, how are we going to navigate this and make sure that we are working for the betterment of all of us, all of us? That wasn't necessarily an obvious thing. Like that wasn't, there wasn't an obvious roadmap. Whereas now I think with Virgil's passing and everything that has come out from that, just nothing but love and positivity and connection and collaboration and all of these things that he's done from a grassroots level of like, helping to open a skate park in Ghana, right? All the way through to Fear of God, um, owner mm-hmm. had some really beautiful things to say about how Virgil was really integral in him starting and building Fear of God, right? So it really runs the spectrum. So for me, I expect to see more from these organizations because, I mean, now we have a very visible, well-known blueprint of like how shit gets done, for the betterment of many other people outside of the, the narcissists and the influencers and the people who are already existing in this rarefied air putting each other on. 
now we see how we could make it more of a collective success. Absolutely, because I think I think we have to be careful, and I also want to put this out there. Uh, and I don't know if we've, we've gotten so deeply into this, but I, you know, we see the we see the success of a few black talents out there who are working an incredible amount. You know, they seem to it's like it's, as you said, it's like almost replacing one system with another. But in particular in the stylist realm, they seem to be getting all the jobs, but there's no, there doesn't seem to be an interest in, in sharing, in uplifting. It seems very bizarre. And here we are. I, I mean, I have to mention this. As black people, our history is so checkered. Trauma is right. And so in many ways, I'm feeling like this is a, an opportunity and a payday for, 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 some, for some of us. And they are seizing that opportunity at all costs, stacking the bank account, stacking the pockets, and keeping it moving, and also using the messaging around inclusivity and representation to get there. And again, I don't want to, I sound like I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little negative, and I don't mean to sound negative, but this is what I observe out there. And um, yeah, you could weigh in on that as well. I, I would generally, I would generally agree with you there, actually. I think, though, what we're, what, what's not being factored in is the psychology of those actions. And we spoke about this with the Naomi Campbell thing, and I think we disagreed largely. But my philosophy on that specific point is that people are a product of their environment. And so I think if you are in a situation that is very different from what you've observed, which is, oh, my gosh, I'm the flavor of the moment and I'm getting all this work, it's like, you would almost be programmed to, you know, like a squirrel, just like get all your kind of nuts and acorns and, and, and harvest them for a rainy day because you don't know where this is going to go. Like this is relatively unprecedented and stylists know more than anyone else that, you know, you're in one minute, you're out another. And there has been that indoctrination into this idea that there, you know, if you're not the only one, there are very few. And so to give that up to someone else is to half the work and whether or not they're willing to do that. So I'm not going to say that what you're saying doesn't, isn't true. Like I fully agree with you, but I think we have to account for the psychology that kind of goes behind this, like me, 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 me. I have to do, I have to look after me first because I don't know where this is going and I, I have to support myself and, you know, I've got my own agenda. I want to be the best of the best. And I think that is why Virgil is, was so rare because that was never his mentality. Like he was always coming from a place of abundance. You know, even when it seemed like he was almost working against his interests, it came back around because it, he operated from a place of abundance. And I think that the issue is that a lot of black professionals are operating from a place of scarcity that creates this narcissistic tendency to only want to see yourself the top of the hill, even if that hill is a hill of inclusion and diversity and accountability and all of the wonderful rhetoric that is making everyone think that this is, you know, that you're doing the work. Um, it, that's just what it is. And so that's why I say about Virgil's legacy, like, are we willing to forego the agenda and the self-preservation and the self-interest to actually do the work for the betterment of all of us. We've seen with Virgil that he was very, very successful and he reached heights that no other black person in the industry really has, has reached. 
And he did all of that by connecting and sharing. And if I ball, you know, we all ball kind of mentality. They know that it's possible. But I think it's also a personality trait. Like, I think a lot of these people are narcissists. We spoke a lot over the last year and a half about the cult and the personality of narcissism. And you really planted that seed in me because now I've almost gone into this deep dive of like the personality of narcissism. And I'm like, wow, actually, is that really the issue here with the power structures? Obviously, race is a layer to that, but I'm thinking across the board, black and white, the issue really is narcissism because even when we see with the, the racial reckoning, we're seeing that these new structures are being built mirroring the old structures, which are all problematic because they're all founded and buoyed up by narcissism. So that seems to be a trait that needs to be reconciled for me personally, because that's, that's the way that I observe the situation. It's like, and this is in contrast, this is in contrast to the quote that Virgil left me with stating, you can tell I'm trying to crowd the because I'd rather it not just be me. It's like, keep the door open, keep it cracked open, and try to build a community. I'm not doing it for any sort of gold star. That, those sentiments, <laughs> I mean, you may hear them in, you know, uh, as a performative one, but those sentiments are not, are not lived by at all with any exactly. other black talent that I see in this. Industry. Exactly. And I think that you hit the nail on the head and to my earlier point about consumers versus industry insiders, everyone is saying that. Everyone has said that at one point or some version of that. So it really is quite hard to decipher those who are actually putting the money where the mouth is and those who are actually just saying it for optics and the betterment of their own agenda. So those are the tricky situations that we have to navigate in terms of on a really basic level, to your point, who's doing the work and who isn't. And I guess that remains to, to be seen. But the positive here is that there is now a blueprint. So it really shouldn't be so hazy in terms of what's actually going on in those pockets and what's going on with the money that was donated here. And hopefully we should now be able to see the fruits of that labor because we've seen a path forward. And, and that path has been a very successful one where Virgil... He didn't lose credibility, he didn't lose opportunity, he didn't lose perceived power, and he made a lot of opportunities for a lot of other people to be successful. And so. that's a super, that's a positive reading on what this man has to deliver to a, to a community for sure. And let's, let's, let's kind of wrap it up now, and I will I'll wrap it up on a positive note, <laughs> that being, um, I also, as I said, I was doing a fair amount of writing this year. And I wrote a, a, a feature for New York Magazine on sort of an anthology of black American female models. And I have to tell you, that's one of the more rewarding things I did this year. Uh, it's just got a tremendous amount of response. And not just the response, I think really what was very rewarding to me was speaking to these unbelievable women, everyone from Pat Cleveland, Veronica Webb, uh, um, uh, Deborah Shaw and Tyra, all, all the, all these, all these uh, amazing black beauties that have worked over the years and their stories. One of the things I recognize on Henrietta is that these, these, these women, you know, their images have been, you know, teleported all over the world for over three to four decades, but not 
much is known about them. They have not spoken mm-hmm. to these women. And it was just so great to, to get a sense of them. And, you know, unfortunately, the, you know, <laughs> I got so much information for the article, but a lot of it wasn't able to be realized in there. But I, what I did realize is how substantive and how, well, how rich of experience these women um, these women are, and they happen to be black. Well, a, a really wonderful, wonderful um, exercise for me writing that feature and just dealing with these, um, engaging rather with these wonderful women and their incredibly dynamic story. I hope that this will have some legs going forward, but if you have not checked that out, it came out in New York Magazine in September um, of this year, and uh, the title of it is They Invented the Supermodel. So check that out. That I, I really loved that feature. And I must say, when you, when you said that you were doing it, I actually couldn't believe that there hasn't been anything like this before. It was one of those like, moments where you're like, oh, oh, wait, this actually hasn't been written about in depth before ever. And so I think that was pretty seminal. So congrats on that. And like, just a general point about all of your writing over the past year and a half, I think has been a real credit to our industry because I think as well as you doing the podcast, I think contributing to these other platforms and these other news outlets, I think is really important because to your point, there has been a dearth of journalism from this perspective and from a black point of view. So I commend you, babes. I think you're doing brilliant work. I always live through writing. So Yes, I implore everyone to read all of the pieces, both at New York Mag, The Cut, and everywhere else that you've been writing. Right. And actually, to that, and just to go back to Virgil for a moment, and maybe I mentioned this earlier, again, that was really, he really clued in. And that just like, I mean, I, I, I know, I know the journalists that exist in this, in this industry, but they just really clued me in. Here is like literally the most, arguably the most successful and, and, and visible designer out there right now. Everyone is talking to him. Everyone wants to hear what he has to say about anything that he endeavors into. But yet, yeah, and this is a black man, and yet it took me to to get into some areas of discussion um, with him. That was really that, and 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 he said he said that this is why it's important to have black journalists so they can tell the stories from this perspective. And he made the point of I don't have to take twenty minutes, you know, to get a white journalist up to speed on the black condition if if one can do that in twenty minutes. You know, these kind of things are really important. I got to tell you, Henrietta, I make money a lot easier than writing. I enjoy writing. It's really rewarding to me, but I can make money a lot easier than that. But I, I ended up doing doing the column for Business of Fashion, doing any other writing that I'm doing, particularly as it relates to race and black people, out of a call to duty. And every time I endeavor into one of these articles, everyone I speak to, it became it becomes or reaffirms rather just how how are lacking talent, uh, journalistic talent, black talent out there um, looking at issues with uh, through a black lens, with a black perspective, and speaking of black talent, there's just a dearth of us out there, and that really impacts the stories that are told. So much of what we discussed in this conversation, those things will not get covered unless a black person literally picks up that, that subject <laughs> and decides to interrogate it. So it, it's, a, it's a very important thing. And so hence my commitment to this journalism, at least for the, for the near term going forward at the call to duty. A hundred percent. But I loved 
chatting with you again. These conversations are always so stimulating to me, and I, I'm always taken by how sort of divergent our perspectives are as well. It's great. Someone who I know well, but yet we can still approach these conversations, you know, with truth and, and differences. I think it's great. I really appreciate it. I know. They're always they're, they're very off the cuff. I'm just like, oh, gosh, I never thought about that till right now. But I don't know. We're back. Like, this is so fun. I very much enjoyed this episode. I think that it was an interesting, random year in review. And I'm really excited about 2022. I'm onwards and upwards. Nothing could be that much worse than 2021 and 2020. So 2022, that's brighter. And I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back into our regular swing of things. And I think every single topic that we covered in this issue will be its own topic of conversation. Uh, I totally, totally agree. And again, we've identified that there are very few people talking about, oh, few, I don't even want to say few, that's being generous. These issues are just not simply be, being discussed. So. Okay, my love. Lovely chatting. Oh, I'm signing off FYI from Buenos Aires, and you are in London, just so our audience knows. (laughs) Yes. um, Haven't been recording in the same room for literally a couple of years, so we are back to our remote remote way of doing things. Please excuse any technical issues. (laughs) Lovely. Lovely. Ciao, Henrietta. Time for something new uh, It's our time for coming through